Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. Today you'll be hearing an interview that Sam conducted with Dale Chapman, author of Jazz Bubble, Neoclassical Jazz in Neoliberal Culture, published by University of California Press. As you can tell, the title of the book kind of explains exactly why we wanted to talk to Dale, considering his book is about a genre of music, jazz, and an ideology associated closely with free market capitalism seem like the perfect fit and the interview you're about to hear proves that uh sam and dale talk about a lot of interesting things but obviously just really explore that relationship between music musical form and political economy and just thinking about how the cultural metaphors provided by artistic practice can be used by broader political forces and also just really interesting to just examine the evolution of jazz over time and Dale Chapman does this really interesting thing in his book where he basically links, uh, you know, all the bad shit that's happened in the mid 20th century, like, say, like urban renewal to uh, the bad shit in the early 21st century, like neoliberal urbanism. So anyways, uh, before we get to the interview, just want to remind you to rate and review us. Please follow us on Twitter and obviously email us if you have any questions. And yeah, enjoy the interview between Dale Chapman, author of Jazz Bubble, Neoclassical Jazz in Neoliberal Culture, and Sam. So to start off, I actually I actually wanted to start kind of from where the book ends because I think it's a really amazing kind of uh, scene that, that that pulls together all of these threads that run through through the work as a whole and, and through the kind of connection that you draw between a specific strand of jazz culture from the 80s onwards and a, a specific stream of kind of economic thought and life and society in that same period of time. So I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, Yoshi's and and the Fillmore and uh, what you could almost call like jazz gentrification in San Francisco. So that particular chapter was uh, one that I came across essentially uh, in working on um, something related, which was essentially uh, coming across um, the ways in which uh, the jazz scene in Los Angeles had been affected um, by the use of a new, uh, the, the use of a, a particular mechanism that the state of California had um, called the Community um, Redevelopment Agency. Um, and this is essentially a, a mechanism that they've had in place since the early 1950s that allowed the formation of public-private partnerships. And there were a set of relationships going on in, um, in LA, particularly in the Lamarck Park uh, district that were being affected by this, um, as well as in Culver City. But I came to realize that there had been a particularly kind of intense um, version of this in San Francisco from the 1950s onwards, um, researching about the Fillmore district and about the tremendously harrowing way that the redevelopment agency uh, in San Francisco had, uh, in the name of civic improvement, 
uh, tried to uh, essentially wound up completely gutting uh, historically um, African-American neighborhood in San Francisco um, and was many years later trying to make amends um, by, uh, you know, by putting in place this, this mechanism that would essentially use a jazz club as a driver of uh, economic revitalization in the neighborhood. Um, and it just struck me as embodying so many of the aspects of, of neoliberalism, neoliberalism's assumptions about what it means to be altruistic, which is to say that, um, first of all, it's never completely altruistic. There's always a sense in which uh, operators within uh, those that are part of the public-private partnership are always pursuing uh, their goals for somewhat instrumental ends. But then over and beyond that, uh, the only way that they could see the image of economic revitalization um, in their minds was through the idea of putting, um, of, of basically accumulating large numbers of large amounts of debt around a single uh, project, a single um, kind of anchor project that would have many moving parts that would uh, depend upon, um, you know, considerable uh, investment um, and that would, uh, because of the use of mechanisms of debt and and debt instruments, would in fact require the parties in question to adhere to a certain kind of model as to what a viable viable enterprise would be. Uh, And so when you zero in on on the idea of a, a flagship project centered around Yoshi's, there are certain kinds of projects that do not get uh, accepted. There's certain kinds of smaller scale and more modest and more uh, community oriented uh, uh, organizations that would essentially, um, you know, simply not be considered uh, as viable. Um, one thing that that was not really looked at seriously or not pursued with the same degree of enthusiasm was, for example, um, you know, another side project that the same uh, redevelopment agency had with the Fillmore, which is to try and uh, provide small loans to small businesses. Um, that could have been the bulk of their emphasis, but instead they chose to place their financial investment uh, very much in this um, flagship project. Um, and as a, as a result, it was subject to the same vulnerabilities as other um, projects of this kind that depend heavily upon debt uh, and that depend upon kind of immediate windfall revenue in order to be successful. So there, there's so much there. I just want to kind of pull it apart um, a little bit. So when we talk about the damage done to the Fillmore area, it, it's a really, I think, incredibly important story. I mean, for, for a number of reasons, but also because I think a number of our listeners know at least the name of the Fillmore as the kind of often like blank canvas, urban blank canvas against which a relatively white, relatively prosperous 60s counterculture was played out. That's exactly right. And in fact, I mean, what what, what I what I got is, is that in f- this is a once thriving community that was damaged potentially, you know, not necessarily irreparably, but 
significant economic damage through state-sponsored redevelopment that then made it so that the businesses that remained were relatively insecure. And then when the hippies came in, there was this kind of uh, more disparate space where a thriving community once had existed. Right. Uh, I think it's really important uh, to note the degree to which the Fillmore, uh, you know, prior to the advent of redevelopment, very much kind of adhered to the type of urban model that we now idealize, that that in the context of, uh, of the 21st century urbanism and what we celebrate about urbanism um, is exactly what we say we would want. So Richard Florida, for instance, uh, you know, author of uh, The Rise of the Creative Class, um, which is definitely one of those books on the coffee tables of many um, neoliberal uh, urban planners, um, he was essentially, uh, you know, he points to neighborhoods that he calls scenes of scenes, um, kind of vibrant uh, neighborhoods with kind of um, multi-use uh, uh, kind of real estate where uh, you have residences chock-a-block with small businesses of various kinds and those multiple different scenes kind of interlocking with one another. And that was very much true of the Fillmore in the 1940s and 50s, which was nicknamed at that time the Harlem of the West and which had alongside, uh, you know, a, a vibrant um, a, a jazz scene um, that that basically any of the uh, East Coast artists that were then, you know, among the most important bebop artists from that time, um, when they were on the West Coast, they would be uh, at these venues um, exchanging ideas with local musicians, uh, you know, at, at, at venues like Jimbo's Bob City, um, you know, and, and really participating in this vital culture. Um, but there were also other kinds of, of businesses interlocking with that as well in, in food and film and, and, and all of the rest of it. Um, and uh, this was precisely, it was at the time, um, the redevelopment agencies were buying very much into a, a mid-century idea of uh, urbanism that was centered around kind of um, single use and kind of monolithic uh, constructions, um, you know, very much you know, the image of the, of the urban tract of the suburban tract development, I mean, um, or of the residential high rise that's kind of bracketed off and separate from everything else around it. Um, the, the kind of densely interwoven, uh, patterns of urban life that we now celebrate, those were the very things that were irreparably damaged. Um, when, and so efforts... in this case, in this case, what was the rede redevelopment? Since essentially um, uh, there were there was a two phase redevelopment project put in place called the A one and A two redevelopments um, that were initiated by the uh, redevelopment agency uh, of San Francisco the the SFRO and this was a body that was empowered by legislation um, passed I think in the late nineteen forties. Uh, that was essentially, um, you know, based on on the on the larger national plan of urban renewal um, that the housing and urban development um, agencies of that time were looking to do, and and the guiding philosophy behind many of the, these at the time was explicitly racist, was to produce new types of 
um, economic vibrancy, explicitly through the displacement of communities of color um, and their replacement by new public-private partnerships that would involve, uh, you know, relocating um, different kind of businesses in, in the neighborhood. Um, and so that project unfolded in two phases, um, and uh, it was enormously destructive uh, to the point where um, San Francisco, you know, the, the, the current situation that it faces um, with a, a really radically diminished uh, base of, uh, of African-American um, residents and businesses relative to many other similar sized cities, um, you know, essentially dates to this period. Um, and the destruction of the Fillmore in that respect is analogous to similar mechanisms that were put in place on the south side of Chicago. Um, the, you know, you could look at similar projects by Robert Moses in New York, like the, the Cross Bronx Expressway, um, and, and on and on through uh, many different uh, cities across the country that were often using um, really destructive tools like eminent domain um, in order to uh, intervene radically in the urban environment and reshape it in the fashion that that city planners um, were hoping to do. I love that framing because it <laughs> it fits with, with one of our kind of uh, mottos <laughs> on this show, which is there never was a good time. That, that, that there's this tendency, uh, especially in discussions of neoliberalism, I think, to look back on the kind of the, the, the New Deal growth liberalism order as kind of this like halcyon period of relative lack of inequality um, for any number of, of you know, uh, working class jobs, high levels of unionization. And I think this framing is really useful because it points out the extent to which these incredibly destructive processes were integral to that order and that the forms of neoliberalism that you track throughout the book and their relationship to jazz emerge as a continuation. As much as they are a change from those dynamics, they are also a continuation of many of them. That's exactly right. Um, we could very much look at neoliberalization as a kind of democratization of precarity that had existed during the halcyon days of the New Deal consensus, but that was displaced by uh, the continuation of Jim Crow uh, legislation and patterns of segregation um, to reside largely within communities of color. So Ira Katznelson, uh, you know, famously in, in a book called When Affirmative Action Was White, points to the fact that many of the things that real celebrants of this period point to, like I think of someone like Thomas Frank that deeply idealizes this period of uh, social security, uh, the, the larger New Deal programs, the, the GI Bill and its its radical boosting uh, and, and forging of, of, a, of a white middle class, and pointing to the fact that through a variety of mechanisms, many of these programs were not as democratically available um, as we would like to believe. Now, of course, there's some controversy surrounding just how pervasive some of those uh, ideas of, uh, of Katz-Nelson's were or, or just how racist they were. Um, but I, I think it is important to recognize that these mechanisms very much were in place and that um, 
you know, even if we look at uh, larger patterns uh, that uh, other authors have pointed to uh, in in terms of uh, access to wealth and the ability to um, inherit wealth and pass wealth down through communities of color, those also weren't in place for for reasons going back to the 19th century. Um, and, And so really you can think of neoliberalism as essentially creating a situation where after a period for several decades um, that essentially at least bracketed the white middle class from some of the worst effects of, uh, of, of capitalist regimes of accumulation, um, you now um, have a new dispensation where uh, those things are essentially democratized, essentially made available, uh, essentially imposed upon people uh, you know, in, in what we call the gig economy or casual labor or um, in, in academia, the adjunctification of labor uh, or a variety of other places in the economy where this has been located. Um, I, I think neoliberalism too, too often um, omits um, a, a, an analysis along the lines of structural racism and, and white supremacy and frames things in terms of a kind of uh, race-neutral um economic and social class analysis that I think really doesn't square with the history of American culture. So with that as kind of the the broad framing, the second part of the story of of Yoshi's and of, of, of jazz redevelopment is then, given all of that, why jazz? Why is a jazz club viewed as an a nearly ideal vessel for the you know the continuation of, of the various kinds of, of, of forms of capitalist development and also I guess what um, what is specifically neoliberal about that approach to jazz and and you know in, in um, describing Yoshi's you talked about, you know, certain kinds of legibility and certain kinds of debt structures related to legibility, right? The idea that instead of having a number of relatively modest growth uh, grants to the community as a form of revitalization, they're like, no, 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 we need to have, we're going to make one really big thing that is going to be legible on an international scale, and the idea of these kind of like global metropolises that's going to have an extremely high amount of debt. So it's going to have to be incredibly profitable in order to survive. And that there is this in that setup. I mean, I read it at least as kind of that, that there's this uh, particular aesthetic of, of how things get um, instituted that, that does relate to, to some of those changes. Right. Well, I, I think in terms of, of how, the project is made legible, um, and in terms of how jazz does that, I think this is where we get to the rise of neoclassicism as a particular aesthetic within the jazz tradition uh, or jazz traditions. I don't mean to be so uh, uh, so uh, to, to paint, paint it as a single grand narrative in that way or anything, but um, but neoclassicism uh, was very much a, a kind of uh, take on jazz that by returning to um, a- acoustic musical instruments, recur- re- returning to certain ideas of kind of uh, of blues oriented and, and swing driven jazz based around 
Tin Pan Alley standards that were recognizable from an er early kind of pre-rock era in, in American history. Um, and uh, returning to kind of genres that, that celebrate bebop and hard bop and that uh, kind of quite self-consciously eschew um, later more radical developments, whether it's jazz rock fusion on the one hand, which is deemed to be too commercial, or uh, free jazz and the jazz avant-garde or the new thing on the other, which was deemed to be too um, politically uh, incendiary and radical. Plus, they can't play changes. That's right. They can't play changes. <laughs> There's a, a certain idea of of standards. It's a double play on the records that, you know, standard time, volume one, two, three, through however many he did, that, that Wynton Marsalis was quite, you know, overtly modeling. Um, that not only was he playing jazz standards, but that he was imposing a new standard of excellence that had certain benchmarks that players uh, in the bebop genre would recognize. Like, can you can you navigate these changes that are unfolding at this particular clip and that uh, are staying within the harmonic framework that that is recognizable and so forth? Um, I, I think this models a certain kind of virtuosity that can be demonstrated to uh, adhere to certain uh, legible patterns. Um, you know, uh, it, it also at the same time, I think, um, because it models a certain idea of excellence, it becomes very useful uh, in making a statement that we could frame in terms of the, the project of respectability politics, which is to say not only the image of um, young, serious, uh, young black men, um, in Italian suits, uh, you know, uh, um, presenting this, this very uncompromising kind of issue of seriousness and of commitment and of purpose. Um, but then also music that was equal, um, to that idea of virtuosity where you could make a clear assessment as to who was and wasn't cutting it within the within the framework of the genre um, and that held people to that standard of excellence. So maybe it'll be useful here to, to just take a step back and, and to, to, to explore a little bit more the, the context of uh, of these musicians um, and kind of their role within the kind of broader sweep of jazz history, which I think you do really, really well in, in the book. And, and, and specifically what, who we're talking about is this group, this the kind of hyped group um, referred to kind of as the New Lions, but really as Wynton Marsalis and co. Yeah. So I, I, I think it, it's, it's important to note first that, uh, you know, I, I was talking about neoclassicism as this narrow thing, but of course, when the term first emerged, it was a much more small C Catholic and encompassing uh, um, term that, that actually, it, it, it essentially encompassed um, any uh, take on the tradition that engaged in some sense um, with the the music of past generations. Um, and so you had more avant-garde artists like, uh, you know, Arthur uh, Blythe or uh, David Murray, um, uh, who were, you know, yes, drawing upon swing and bebop and uh, early areas, eras in jazz history, but also putting it into communication um, uh, into resonance with the jazz avant-garde in ways that would later be seen as as as, as less common. Um, but what began to happen in the uh, early 1980s 
you had uh, a number of musicians, many of them coming out of the uh, out of New Orleans and specifically out of uh, a school called the uh, New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, um, which had a very strong uh, kind of traditional uh, conservatory curriculum, both in jazz and classical music, and for which Ellis Marsalis, the uh, Marsalis brothers' um, father, um, was a, a key instructor. Um, and, and he passed on last year uh, as a result of the, the COVID uh, epidemic, quite sadly. Um, uh, Noka kind of celebrated a particular kind of idea of jazz um, that was uh, very much kind of based in the rudiments of jazz. Um, and you had a number of very important figures coming out of that uh, school. Um, not only Wynton Marsalis, his uh, brother Bradford Marsalis, who would be, you know, um, uh, saxophonist for the the Tonight Show and or band leader for the Tonight Show during the early '90s, and and who of course has a really crucial uh, career in his own right. Uh, Delphio Marsalis, who was um, the producer for many of the most important records, uh, and uh, also a trombonist, um, and then um, uh, uh, other figures like uh, Terence Blanchard and uh, Donald Harrison. Uh, initially, during this decade, I think many of these musicians were influenced strongly by two groups. One's, one uh, was the Miles Davis uh, Quintet of the late 1950s, um, featuring Tony Williams, uh, Ron Carter, Herbie Hancock, and Wayne Shorter. Um, and indeed, many of those musicians actually collaborated with Wynton Marsalis on, on his uh, first uh, self-titled uh, uh, album with Columbia Records. Um, uh, and then Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers that I think, uh, you know, was also another group that lays out a very um, particular model for what the jazz uh, tradition would be, very much based in hard bop. And as this kind of term goes along further, and as you get new musicians affiliated with the genre, including uh, figures like... Um, uh, Antonio Hart or Roy Hargrove or Muldrew Miller. Um, uh, uh, the Blue Note stable of uh, artists of records from the 1950s and 60s also becomes a key stylistic touchstone for many of these figures as well. The the Miles choice is always really fascinating to me because because it seems not to get too too deep in, into the, the the jazz weeds here. It's it seems like many of these figures have a very acute sense of the, the potentials for historiographical argument, right? Of like the potential benefits of drawing lines. And, and it's a really, Miles is such an interesting example because there's a clear thing he does, which is go kind of electric acoustic and then increasingly electric that allows you to sharply parse like good miles from bad miles. Right. <laughs> in a way that, a figure like Coltrane's output, which he's doing very atonal things, but in an acoustic sense, but also sometimes even later on is doing, making sounds that sound more like the earlier Coltrane that I assume is more acceptable to these players, though maybe it was even then it was too modal, much of it. Um, or like, um, you know, the, the really great um, Ornette bands that are also playing kind of out in a, boundary pushing way that in some ways 
Miles is an ideal figure because it allows you to make an argument that here, here's the fall from grace and it was good and then something happened and it was bad versus someone like Ornette where it's like they can play changes and they swing like hell, but there's always something tonally boundary pushing about them, even from the you know, fairly early records. Right. I, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think... Uh, there's a couple of things that are attractive to them about about Miles Davis. Um, for one thing, it was incredibly uh, hip, incredibly engaging music that uh, that you could point to what uh, Tony Williams was doing with Time, or what uh, you know Wayne Shorter was doing with the this you know the the compositions that he was producing, the, the harmonic ambiguities that they were navigating. Uh, the the tremendously active uh, comping of, of Herbie Hancock and the way that that rhythm section worked together, um, these were producing incredibly um, in, incredibly powerful uh, and and challenging and and bleeding edge uh, uh, improvisations that on the one hand still adhered to um, a, a certain idea of navigating a particular temporal framework. So I talk in the book about time, no changes, meaning that, that while uh, they may have veered outside of prevailing chord changes for uh, large sections of uh, any particular performance, um, they were still held together um, by the, the grid work of a shared kind of a timeline or tactus that everyone had to lock into and in relation to which everyone was accountable. Um, so at, at one and the same time, it's incredibly free and nimble music that nevertheless imposed certain kinds of um, standards, quote unquote, um, on the musicians involved with them. I think the other thing that was attractive about the same framework that uh, was that, as you say, the, the, the so-called fall from grace was not a, a technical musical one, uh, as in the case of the, of the Coltrane shift to free improvisation. Um, or or anything um, that was about a move to a, a different uh, cultural sensibility in terms of Coltrane's embrace of spirituality or, or or similar kinds of things. Instead, it was the fall from grace in in Miles Davis' case could at least be framed as a, 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 a circumstance of commercial sellout, <laughs> um, which I I don't think really necessarily makes sense if if you listen to uh, you know, records like, uh, you know, um, in a silent way now, um, it wouldn't necessarily be inherently obvious to anyone that these would be commercially successful records. Um, they, they use rock and in, in, in ways that, um, were, uh, incredibly radical. And of course the late 1960s is an unusual period in terms of the fact that, you know, some of the most, uh, you know, successful and prominent um, records that came out were also very much at the leading edge of kind of experimentation. Um, you know, but but it was very easy to kind of point to the embrace of electronic instruments, um, the manipulation of sound that Teo Macero was doing in the studio, um, the application of particular effects like delay or distortion, um, and to say that this was an, an instance of selling out. Um, not to mention the fact that Miles Davis himself was on the record as trying to attract new audiences, which I think he saw very much in terms of trying to be socially relevant, 
um, in particular to a young um, black audience that he felt had uh, been lost to straight ahead acoustic jazz. Um, but it's a, there's a way to interpret that uh, as a sense of, of trying to market to a larger audience and thus to be more commercially successful. Um, so if you can point to those two things, then the music that is just on the other side, that, that is just before that, that threshold, um, that is tremendously adventurous uh, and exploratory, but that doesn't veer into that potential mistake of embracing um, the great god of mammon, <laughs> um, you know, could be seen as a point of as a very powerful point of departure for a project that was centered on um, revitalizing the jazz tradition. So, with that kind of historiographical eye, then this connects, and I think you do a really fascinating job connecting this to kind of broader. It it, it fits really well with, with broader. I guess neoliberal projects, but also just ways of thinking that meshed with kind of broader ideas in the gestalt. And in, in this gets, you know, this is very hard to pin down, like how do certain ideas fit with kind of these amorphous currents, but I think you do a really good job of it, right? That there's a sense that someone like Wynton Marsalis is able to position himself as kind of a disciplined individual who has done the due diligence to be able to play at this extremely high level and take risks within limits that makes this music not just potentially aesthetically and commercially viable, but somehow moral almost. Right, exactly. Um, uh, this is where I think the work of Randy Martin has been incredibly helpful to me in, in thinking through some of these um, these circumstances, um, which is that he, um, in looking at the history of the increasing financialization of American culture, um, discusses you know emerging subjectivities that that could you know increasingly be divided into a binary of uh, of at risk versus risk capable. That is, uh, those who are um, uh, up to the task of navigating um, the uh, economic turbulence and financial turbulence of the 21st century with its demands that we, um, you know, are always looking to optimize our place within the marketplace on the one hand, um, and, and then uh, another class of people that are not deemed not equal to this task on the other and who increasingly fall behind in a way that is frame, framed as an individual fault rather than uh, the outcome of, uh, of structural inequality. So to be at risk um, during this period, whether it's in the context of finance, whether it's in the context of health, uh, whether it's in the context of the drug epidemic, um, these determining who is deemed to be at risk becomes an assessment that is um, more than a little tinged with a moral judgment. And it is part, very much part of the calculus that, uh, that we see in, uh, in, in terms of the Lincoln's jazz at Lincoln center project and, and the entire way that Wynton Marsalis, Stanley Crouch and uh, like-minded colleagues frame um, the, you know, the opposition of what they do um, to what they see as the, the, the decadence um, 
uh, of, of hip hop music and a vernacular uh, American popular music at that moment. What's fascinating, I think, is what, what you do and that really changed the way I thought about a lot of these figures is that then you put them in this very different context, which is the context and the political economy of the music industry during the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s and kind of point out the ways in which the cultural project of the new lions of Wynton Marsalis and Stanley Crouch and Jazz at Lincoln Center fits at this very specific moment in the um, CD-driven boom of the music industry, of the ways that previous texts and previous jazz uh, music had um, become newly available and, and fit it into this broader context. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. There's this kind of a five-year window within which this uh, particular dispensation works really well, and then it stops working, um, which is to say that for a variety of reasons, um, uh, Polygram, as the uh, uh, you know, as 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 the large record company that had come into ownership of the um, of the Verve label, um, had through the work of uh, the the producer Richard Seidel, um, begun to zero in on a strategy of of marketing jazz to the same kind of audience that they had already built for classical music. And, and it, it's a, a very particular kind of investment model um, for the artist and repertory executives uh, to think about, which is that you're um, expecting kind of modest profits over a very long period of time. Uh, that is to say, you're not going to have a sudden explosive windfall like you would from, you know, uh, the, the, the sale of contemporaneously, I guess, a Madonna record, if we're talking about the 1980s. Um, instead, you would be willing to be patient with um, having particular artists on your roster that are going to generate, um, uh, you know, modest but predictable sales over a longer period of time. Uh, and so that gives you an avenue by which you can provide a support for acoustic jazz. Um, that then coincides with the introduction of the compact disc as a, as a new recording technology that is fetishized by a particular kind of uh, upwardly mobile, upper middle class um, sensibility that likes its for its audiophile qualities, but that is also interested in kind of, you know, rebuilding their collection of records, um, this time on an entirely new format. And, you know, that moment gives an opportunity for Seidel to kind of reissue the entire uh, you know, back catalog of Verve records going back to the, you know, fifties. Uh, and the same process is of course going on at Columbia records uh, uh, under, uh, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the uh, producers there. Uh, uh, but, uh, but Columbia was very much operating under the, uh, the same uh, kind of argument. And, and this was also true of uh, other companies that were, reissuing their back catalog on CD. And it creates a space in which they can also promote new artists that are producing the same kinds of music, that are producing music in this uh, hard bop vein from the 40s and 50s, and that very much resembles the, the Blue Note uh, catalog from, from back in the day. Um, 
And that works really well um, during the whole period in which people are in the process of still building up their CD libraries. And then in around 1995, that process begins to peak. And um, the fact that those labels had gone all in during the, 19, uh, the early 1990s in marketing aggressively this, this image of the young lions, uh, of these uh, young, serious, uh, very nicely attired uh, musicians playing straight ahead acoustic uh, uh, jazz in the bebop or hard bop vein. Um, the fact that they had not diversified their portfolio means that they, in around 1995, had to, you know, really radically re-envision things. And then you begin to see a much more kind of eclectic and disparate uh, set of strategies put in place. And the musicians that had been boosted um, by this, uh, many of them coming out of, you know, conservatories and so on that were pursuing this kind of straight ahead sensibility, you know, all of a sudden are, are left with uh, a very different kind of market environment. It's such a fascinating story because, it, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's a broad net. The outlines of that narrative are one that we've gone over many, many times in this show because it's such a, a crucially important period and such a crucially important dynamic to get hold of. And I love this story because it, it, it let it provides a very different perspective on it, right? right? That for one, you've got these reissues. And I think, interestingly enough, right, like unlike <laughs> um, we make fun of the Rolling Stones sometimes as every 10 years convincing their fans to buy a new greatest hits collection right um and also just you know another copy of let it bleed but unlike the rolling stones the jazz reissues actually because of the specific dynamics of jazz in this period really do have a lot of new material right they tend to actually you are getting different music there's an ability to dive deeper into these catalogs that the limits of the LP had previously um, had previously made kind of unavailable. Right. But at, at the same time, it's also funny. So there's there's that angle. But at the same time, it's also funny because it connects at this very specific moment in the broader trend towards centralization and kind of the the kind of uh, three company cartel world that we live in today. In that. It seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that if you've got a lot of kind of indie labels, they're not able, it, it, it requires a fair bit of cash and a fair bit of cash flow to take this, like, I guess, like slow and low strategy. Right. But if you're a fairly consolidated record label, actually having you know your classical division and your jazz division which are doing you know they're not yet like you said they're not doing madonna numbers but they're like pro positive profit centers and this like steady stream and people like to see that and they can help balance out like you know if madonna went grunge one year and it didn't work they can kind of help in general um note to listeners she did not do that <laughs> but, um, i know that she didn't do that <laughs> um but that also, so in so so both of those kind of of, of those, those timing and those dynamics um, connect here to make it possible, like you said, to to sell new artists um, that are making music in the style of these reissues. But that also 
then you get the kind of the broader dynamics of the story, which is the entire music industry, because it's it's possible to promote yourself basically off the edge of the cliff, is going to do this on a macro level that ends in the, the, the absolute bloodbath of the early 2000s. Right. Um, and then also, and the element that, that you do a really fascinating job discussing in the book is then the next stage of consolidation when it goes from, let's say, the big five or six, I can't remember whether they're five or six in like 95, mm-hmm. turns pretty quickly into the big four or three. And in addition, the process of, again, kind of debt-backed acquisition that it takes to get there and the promise of stockholder profits that undergirds that process of deve- of centralization changes the dynamics and really pulls out the, the, the rug out from underneath a, a, a musical movement that's, like you said, kind of already struggling. Right. Yeah. No, there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I think, I mean, to get back to your earlier point about the reissues, I mean, one thing that, uh, of course, really makes sense. And of course, I loved <laughs> some of these reissues, like the reissues for In a Silent Way or Bitches Brew by Miles Davis, um, you know, you get to hear the kind of raw, uh, you know, tracks that were mixed down and, and spliced together by Teo Macero. Uh, you know, I, I think one thing that in the jazz context, you know, really lends itself there is is just the fact that um, there's, uh, you know, less of a, an investment in the idea that there is a decided uh, only take, um, that in fact, different takes are going to give you radically different takes on the same thing. And so, you know, many of these reissues would often come, you know, bundled with a whole bunch of alternate takes, you know, tacked onto the end of it. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that jazz fans love because they're quite happy to sit through another version of all the things you are and hear Dexter Gordon navigate those changes entirely differently from what they did previously. Um, But I think the other thing that you speak to um, that I think is so important um, on the one hand, this idea of a kind of increasingly federated model um, where, you know, as Keith Negus kind of talks about it, a loose type, tight arrangement where um, you can allow all kinds of kind of creative autonomy um, to those labels on the ground. You don't have the suits kind of uh, mucking in and intervening in what kinds of bands they uh, seek to uh, uh, to sign or, uh, you know, which kind of um, image that label is going to produce um, because, you know, you, you want to trust the cultural capital that's held um, by the, the people that are native to those um, indie labels and so forth. Um, but then extremely tight on the bottom line, which is to say new mechanisms uh, like, for example, um, you know, uh, portfolio management that Keith Negus and uh, and Travis Jackson both talk about as a really crucial development of what's shaping the jazz market during this period, um, where um, it used to be the case that, uh, you know, back in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, even if Miles Davis records weren't necessarily selling a lot that year, you would still want uh, to hang on to that artist as a prestige name on your label because it would uh, increase the cultural capital of the label and you would balance it off of, uh, you know, any revenues that were being earned in that same year um, by, you know, the uh, top artists that, that Columbia was, was selling. 
But by the time you get to the 1990s, each individual unit has to demonstrate profitability. And this increasingly favors a situation where, uh, you know, you know the, the smaller labels are increasingly going to hire artists that can demonstrate, uh, you know, immediate kind of trajectories of revenue production um, that, uh, you know, that, that increasingly, you know, doesn't describe the uh, young lions jazz artists that, that I think there was much more success in promulgating the image um, of the young lions than in actually selling the records when push came to chub as outside of one or two artists that I think, you know, developed, you know, considerable hegemony within that, uh, that framework. But then I think all of this has to be taken into account. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of good explanations that you can derive from consumer behavior and from changing technological formats and so on that, that help to explain, uh, you know, the demise of jazz uh, divisions at the major labels in the early 2000s. Um, but I, I think we really have to keep in mind the broader context of financialization um, and the fact that um, logics of shareholder value and, and also of a debt-driven model of consolidation where, uh, you know, you, you know, deliberately kind of embrace the discipline of debt. Uh, you know, maybe you've got a company that is living well within its means, um, but you actually want to merge it with another company because the discipline of debt will, uh, you know, produce shareholder value, um, even if that means having to lay off uh, workers and axe, you know, uh, dozens, if not hundreds of musicians from your, uh, from your artists, from your label rosters. Um, it's an enormous, it's, it's the manifestation of creative destruction that is uh, different from an earlier moment in the, in the music industry. Um, and that is incredibly turbulent, you know, for the jazz world in particular, but also clearly for other genres that were being directly affected by these new financial models. So what's really interesting, though, is that then after kind of the rise and fall of this neoclassical acoustic jazz boomlet, after that, in many ways, after, in some ways, the promise of that to sell significant copies significant copies of records right like that the promise that okay what you need is discipline and you need integrity and the music and the popularity will follow and that was the problem with the preceding era of jazz after that's kind of proven not not to be true still this and in some ways increasingly this idea of jazz has real appeal within kind of the broader world, whether that's of TED Talks or of urban redevelopment. And so I guess to kind of end, I want to talk for a little bit about what you think it is about the idea, like almost like the signifier of jazz as constructed by the Young Lions and neoclassical jazz and Wynton Marsalis. What is it about that that is so appealing to this broader political economy. Right. I, I, I think to speak to your earlier point, the fact that it was, uh, you know, that it, that it was many years in coming and that, that you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, Yoshi's kind of build upon that particular idea 
of a, a jazz legacy uh, and of the you know redevelopment agency continuing to build upon a certain idea of jazz um, or of TED talks and and so forth, you know continuing to promulgate a particular idea of jazz as a kind of uh, symbol of institutional uh, renewal and innovation and all of those things. I think I think part of it is an institutional lag time, right? That that these are, as I put in the book, kind of oil tankers that take a long time to turn around. And despite the fact that the Wynton Marsalis heyday was, uh, you know, in in the late '80s, early '90s, that many institutions were kind of eventually coming around to a picture of jazz um, based on those those sensibilities, you know, well after it had happened. Um, but I think the thing that's attractive about jazz is a variety of things. It's a, a way of framing innovation um, that can be legible to institutions that are afraid of following the implications of that innovation all the way to the end, uh, which is to say that, um, you know, the music, you know, is, comes out of black culture um, and, um, if you can locate within black culture uh, a particular manifestation of the tradition um, that is playful and adventurous within its own kind of narrow ambit, but that doesn't uh, threaten to kind of spill over into the more radical logics uh, of the types of social innovation that uh, black cultural practice has always envisioned, then you can um, incorporate or adopt or embrace something that has been made safe for large corporate or large institutional or uh, large non-governmental uh, um, consumption. Um, something that can be, I mean, this this is kind of something that um, Farah, Jasmine, Farah Jasmine Griffin and um, uh, George Lewis and others have pointed about, pointed out about the jazz at Lincoln Center program specifically, um, which is that the donor class um, that, uh, you know, provides the philanthropic source of support for jazz at Lincoln Center. Uh, they're not going to necessarily invest in uh, a vision of jazz shaped by David Murray or by the Art Ensemble of Chicago, or or even necessarily um, by uh, you know Kamasi Washington or uh, Robert Glasper. Although it's interesting, I, I mean, the way that some of these things are changing, some of the institutions have become a little bit more hip, or at least a little bit more able to navigate hipness um, by embracing more recent things. So, for example, the San Francisco Jazz Organization, um, with its uh, you know uh, construction of a brand new SF Jazz Center, um, you know uh, it's able to bring in a kind of stable of artists that are more representative of the current wave of figures that are coming through. And they're doing kind of really interesting collaborations, like uh, Jason Moran uh, had a collaboration with skateboarders with his bandwagon uh, group that uh, are, you know, they're all navigating a half pipe while their band is improvising. And you can kind of show the kind of lineup between the, the you know, physical improvisation of the skateboarders on the one hand and the, the you know, his, his own group's improvisation on the other. Um but at an earlier moment, certainly, Jazz at Lincoln Center had to showcase a particular model of uh, innovation that was not going to be too disruptive, that because it could be made to seem proximate to the Western classical tradition, 
could appeal to people that were already invested in that as the apex of uh, of, of Western culture, uh, and 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 essentially, um, it, you know, it, it becomes something that's that's innovative but not too innovative. I, I think uh, similar kinds of sensibilities kind of shape a particular idea of jazz as a a, a driver of urban renewal or a, a, a driver of many kinds of uh, localized efforts uh, at uh, corporate um, or non-governmental, uh, uh, you know, revitalization that that are put in place. Given all of that, I almost wonder whether you know you kind of point to this institutional lag time between this acoustic jazz boomlet in the '80s and the kind of picking up of jazz as this broader cultural value. And I, I almost wonder if. I mean, as you kind of explained, like the so to what extent the lag is the point, right? The fact that this is no longer a commercially viable music in the same way it once was. I mean, it's almost, um, you know, it's almost like the, you could you could almost say it's the post-industrial music par excellence, right? It's not making and selling well before the rest of the music industry isn't making and selling discs in large numbers. <laughs> Jazz isn't making and selling discs in large numbers. Right. And so in some way, I wonder if it, it's a, it, it's potency as, as a cultural signifier is almost, it, it is made more useful and more flexible because of the space that it has from popularity, from money-making, from independent bases of money-making. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking in the mid eighties, it was about 20 years since the uh, the Miles Davis uh, music that, that, that we've been talking about that they were kind of drawing from. In 2000, it was about 20 years from old school party down hip hop, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which you could say has a similar difference in cultural, certain kinds of cultural values, certain kinds of potential respect. You know, you could you could imagine groups doing similar types of cultural activity differentiating like oh back when it was about turntablism and breakdancing and live improvisation in front of a crowd before gangster rap happened and it all went bad but i think that in some ways hip-hop was still i mean just really still stretching its wings as an economic force in the music industry which made it maybe not available for that kind of ideological manipulation right yeah no i i think um the jazz hip hop parallel is a, a really uh, important one. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, for instance, um, you know, just thinking about the fact that that many hip hop artists, um, you know, did, uh, you know, and and have at various time kind of sampled jazz, it becomes a kind of signifier of a certain kind of authenticity or rootedness uh, that that becomes uh, important, um, and. And, and the same kind of parallel idea of old school, um, you know, of, of a relationship to an uncompromising old school is also kind of put forward. Um, I think with respect to your earlier point, it's really intriguing to think about jazz as a, as a music that kind of already anticipates um, the, the context of the post record sales driven market, uh, which is to say that. You know, if if we still have an idea in the 1990s of kind of shifting units, and jazz is already envisioning a world, uh, you know, particularly by the early 2000s, 
where uh, it's more important as a vehicle of cultural capital in mobilizing large corporations and um, giving university curricula a kind of patina of, of forward thinking, whatever, and uh, being integrated into, um, you know, um, the practices of, of non-governmental organizations. Um, that sensibility um, of jazz, you know, um, being something that is is more useful to those corporations uh, as a, a symbol of something else than it is as a, as a, a kind of marketable commodity in its own right, kind of really anticipates the whole, uh, you know, present model of the, the music industry, where it's really more important for um, musicians to navigate and produce uh, cultural capital than to mobilize, you know, uh, you know, numbers of streams. You, you're developing a brand, um, and that brand uh, is is much more than the sum of the sheer number of, uh, you know, Spotify clicks that emerge from it. It, it becomes something that drives the other uh, cultural properties that are attached to it. And in much the same way, you know. Uh, you know, the neoclassical idea of jazz as a kind of symbol of renewal that is still kind of clean cut and freshly scrubbed and uh, and not too threatening to the corporate class um, is, is something that very much, um, you know, becomes a brand um, that those uh, different, uh, you know, entities can use that seems to work in a way that, that it's actual sales of records, you know, you know, cannot at all match. Yeah, and, and I just think it's, it's such an amazing example. This entire book is one of the reasons why, why I loved it so much and why as soon as I started reading it, I wanted to make sure you'd come and talk with us on the show is the ways in which it's such a rich jazz and in this period is, is, is such um, a rich site that connects to all of these dynamics that it's such a clear argument for how you can get a sense of broader social shifts and broader economic shifts and the dynamics in between them, both through kind of like the, the, the content and the, the, the structure of, of this music. Right. I, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's, um, it, it wouldn't necessarily, you know, lend itself, you would think, um, as the most obvious uh, signifier of the particular era of, of neoliberalism, not least which because, um, you know, we affiliate the period of neoliberalism with other uh, technological shifts that, that may see, you know, and, and new kinds of post-modernities that would seem anathema uh, to many figures in the, in the jazz tradition. Um, but of course, uh you know, each particular cultural practice that emerges from a time and place can be a different lens on it. Um, and uh, I think it's more useful to look at a, a, a jazz as a kind of lens onto um, the way that capital and, uh, and um, you know, hegemonic forces um, are operating at this point. Um, than to see it as any kind of, uh, you know, broader indication of things on the ground. We, we need kind of um, to understand the microcosms of the way that uh, institutional forces and 
uh, and concentrations of power are looking to as, as their symbolism and their points of departure and their reference points. Um, as much as we do anything uh, that may represent a more uh, democratic engagement with, with what ordinary people are going through um, uh, during a, a given time and place. Um, because, you know, understanding those dynamics um, is uh, as important as that for understanding the way that power is marshaled and concentrated uh, and, uh, and distributed in an even time. Well, I think that's about it for us, uh, Professor Chapman. Thank you again for, for taking some time to come and, and talk with us. Uh, so again, this uh, we're speaking with Dale Chapman, the author of The Jazz Bubble, Neoclassical Jazz in Neoliberal Culture, out now on University of California Press. Thank you so much again for, for um, coming Money for Nothing. It was an absolute pleasure to uh, speak with you today, Sam. Thank you so much.